Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowblassengame, and I am your host. Today, we have John Sidmore. Raised on a reservation in Montana, John Sidmore's life drastically changed when his mother died suddenly at age five, which he later found out was a suicide. Left with his younger brother and a man who wasn't his biological father, John's life became overwhelmed with the belief that he didn't truly fit in anywhere. Convinced he was less than everyone else around him, he struggled to fill his pain and insecurities with alcohol, weed, and codependent relationships. John's journey to sobriety is filled with everything from intense heartache to full circle healing. In this interview, he shares what brought him to choose sobriety and his commitment to stay sober no matter what comes his way. You guys, awesome, awesome. John talks about getting sober and growing up on a reservation and finding out that his father who raised him was not his biological father the same month that he found out that his mother had completed suicide. And it just gets even even wilder from there. I hope you all enjoy. I've had a wonderful time talking to John towards the end of our interview about recovery, what it takes to stay sober. And John definitely has done a lot of work to get to where he is today. Really, really cool to hear. And he's also a Lion Rock alumni. So gotta love that. So without further ado, episode 65, let's do this. John, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself because what I know that you are Native American mm-hmm. and you are in recovery two two plus years, right? Yeah, I'm just about uh, the 2nd of August will be two and a half years. Awesome. Awesome. And you've been to a, a couple different treatment centers. Uh, just the one. I was trying oh, just to... just the one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to do a couple of different options and that's the option that was available for me and really glad I went. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your life was like early on with your family. Growing up, I grew up in Kalispell, Montana. I'm the oldest of two. We grew up, my mother had passed away when my brother and I were real little. I was five, he was three, raised by a single parent. My dad was the single parent and I really don't know how I did it, but he did it. There is two of us. We started out, everything was good, and 17 was kind of a, a big awakening for me. And then that's kind of what, right in through there is kind of what changed a lot for me. So let's back up just a little bit. Your mother, she passed away, how how you were five. What was that? And you're, you said your brother's younger? Yes. So what was that like when that happened and when you got that information? A lot of that to a five-year-old didn't know how to compute. We were just told uh, she died of alcohol poisoning is what we were told like our whole life. There was a lot of, a lot of growing up was about, you know, what do you kind of do with this information type deal with kids are with their moms, we're not, we're the dad, you know, it was different. And he still, I mean, we went fishing all the time. We did everything and it was really good. It's just, we didn't have that other piece. And for the longest time, we just had done the whole, you know, it was traumatic and everything, but the whole thing was just, just kind of 
she died of alcohol poisoning, and that's what everybody loves to believe. And that's pretty much how it went through. So when you say everybody led us to believe that, it turned out that she didn't die of alcohol poisoning, right? Yes. I found out a lot of stuff on my 17th year. With my mother's passing, there was a lot of I don't knows. I mean, I went through gifted and talented, a bunch of stuff because I would always, they would always say like I was really mature for my age. I would do a lot of things different than other kids. And a lot of it was just because, you know, I was five, I remember, you know, and it was something traumatic. And I think a lot of it's just I didn't know what to do with it. And for a five-year-old, I don't think you ever will. I always took care of my brother, and that's what it was, is just taking care of him and doing for him. What did, so I guess I have two questions. My first question is, how did your dad coach you through, you know, other people having the mom and and you guys not having that? And then what did they tell you when you found out that it wasn't alcohol poisoning? My dad is the youngest of 12. So he had a lot of sisters and aunts, and they kind of filled in that gap. The whole family kind of did. We did a lot with grandma, a lot with aunts. So there wasn't a whole lot of the mom there. I mean, our aunts and our grandma, kind of like mom, had filled it in. I found out after my dad and I were arguing, I left the house. As arguing as just about 17, got in an argument, and... I'd went through some papers before, and I mean, we weren't doing too good. He was still in his addiction, and I was just starting mine. And I found some paperwork that did say suicide for my mother. And then shortly after I left the house, I walked away from everything, you know, went to friends, didn't want anything to do with them. I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't have my social security card or anything else because I'd left it at the house. I went to go get my social security card. And I told him my mother's maiden name, Cheryl Edward, Cheryl Lynn Edwards, father's name, Ed Roy Sidmore. And they're like, that's not what's on here. And just by chance at the Social Security office, they mentioned A. Hayden. And I found out and traced it around and pretty much lied to my family and told them, look, I already know this side of the story. What's your guys' side? And they're like, oh, shit, you know, he knows. And that's when they kind of opened up and said, okay, well, he's this guy. He's this. And wait, wait, wait. So hold on. So you, so let me get this. So you find out that your mother committed suicide, that she did not, she did not die of alcohol poisoning. And then you go to get a driver's license. Yep. My and social security card, yep. Your social security card, rather. And you find out that your father is not your father. Yeah, like, you know, this is like three months of itself, like with everything going on. And then after we did that, the timeline, um, after that had happened, then we kind of contact him. We were staying with friends. Roy, which is my father that raised me, or my dad that raised me, had uh, wanted to try to get us back and try to get us back in the home because my little brother had left at the same time, too. He couldn't do that because we're Native American. So we became wards of the state, and we got sent to the reservation because we are federal property. Because whoa, whoa, we have whoa. What? Number. Yep, we have an identification number, and you're under 18, you're Native American, you don't have any place to be suited to, the tribe can take you. So the tribe took us, and we had you know, our aunts and everything there. So halfway through my senior year, I moved. Which tribe, and why did... Black why? Feet. Okay, and that and was took us because Montana we talked too? to our aunt. Yeah, 
dead center of Montana, right next to Glacier National Park. And they'd taken us in. We'd talked to our aunt and everything and let her know kind of what's going on, which direction to go. And she'd actually contacted the tribe, got us, and we were placed with her. Because we're federal, because we're federal, we have an identification number. Being a native, everything got pulled into there. So the federal government said, "Hey, look, this is where they're going. Nothing else could be done." So I get yanked over there. How actually, old are you when that happened? Seventeen. It was that same same timeline. Of so like I, have a, I have a question about that, though. So Roy, who's your who's your, the dad who raised you? Yeah. So Roy. This all happens. You're 17. You find this all this information out, right? And then you want to leave Roy, and so you're on the r- run, so to speak. Like you don't have anywhere to go. And and then the federal government intervenes. Yep. Yep. Okay. That's, okay. That's, okay. That's how it, the timeline is. Is we'd left and we didn't want to go back, and we'd contacted our aunt, and we okay. didn't know that. No, hey, look, this is how it works. Right. 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 Okay. How it works. And got it. Got it. <laughs> and then. So that was like Thanksgiving Day, I think, is when, yes, Thanksgiving Day when we went over from my friend's house and that, and moved over with her. And that was just the start of everything because over there it was just kind of like we were distant from that family to begin with. There's a lot of reasons why, just because there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff like that was going on over there, just the poverty, the using, not so much drugs, just using in general for, you know, financial gain, stuff like that. That's what we were mainly used for. I found after that, that following year, I moved to Dillon to try to see what's going on with my actual father because I tracked him down, moved here to Dillon, and had kind of just walked away from all of it. And then... what what was li- life like? You get to the reservation at 17. You're with your aunt, mm-hmm. aunt and your brother. And you're also, at the, this is also the start of your addiction. What is life on the reservation like? Because this is, it sounds like this is your first real introduction to. Mm, I had a little bit. Yeah, I had a little bit just growing up, just trying and played around with, smoked a lot of pot drank every little bit, like just a little bit, mainly just to smoke pot and smoke cigarettes. And then when we got to the reservation, there was still a little bit of it, but not as much because we were under a lot more. I mean, our aunt wouldn't let us go, you know, down the street. The reservation's really poor because there's nothing there for economy. I mean, you're looking at a little bit of tourism, some egg stuff, you know, six bars, Two churches, two convenience stores, and a hospital. Yeah, that's where we're at. So, for you know, those of us who who don't have that exposure, what is what is different about living on a reservation than living out in you know the rest of of society? What what you know, from what I understand, there are the basically reservation officers, cops, like that is the. There are different laws. It's very. Oh yeah, a- oh yeah, yeah. There is. Oh, the the reservation's a sovereign nation, so it is in exact its own. You don't pay state taxes when you work on the reservation. If you are a Native American, you have more rights to do stuff on there than everybody else. There's a lot of stuff that there that that like the economy. There isn't a lot of the economy. There's a lot more. 
there's just a lot more stuff that is just like there's egg base, there's tribal rules, there's tribal this, and it's just kind of it's almost it's a perfect idea of socialism is what it is because the government pays everything because you can't do anything. You get incentives if you're on the reservation to stay on the reservation. Like when we were over there, we got my aunt got more money for us because we were on there and in her care, and that was part of the breadwinning for the family because there's nothing really for jobs. There's nothing really to do there. There's a lot of addiction and and alcoholism because there's nothing to do. I mean, we went over there Thanksgiving Day, 2003. It was 25 below, 60-mile-an-hour wind, and there was nothing there. Like, you have the Glacier National Park, and then you have three trees in the Badlands. That's the reservation. There's nothing there. So they, so it was similar to like the foster care system where they're getting money for taking care of you guys. And so that's what my aunt wanted to see when we thought it was all that, oh, look, she was being nice and wanted to help us out. Now we figured out that she got an incentive from the government, first of all, for having us in care. She got child support from Roy because they're in care. And then she got additional incentives for the housing and for everything else because we were in her care. So it wasn't really like, oh, look, great, you know, come over here, my boy. Nah, it was because she got money from us for having us there. And what was, was it, you know, aside from that, you said there's a lot of addiction, there's a lot of, you know, there's not a lot to do. What do, what do people do? And did you feel, you know, finding that stuff out, did you feel safe on the reservation? I felt safe on it. I felt sad mainly because there wasn't a lot to do. I mean, kids go to school. They did a lot of basketball, a lot of sports, because that's the only thing you can really do besides high school sports. I mean, you can go out and buy a bottle of Dix and walk around the street and drink. That's about what you've got. There's nothing, you know, no huge buildings. Now they got a couple of casinos and another lodge and stuff. But when I was there, like I say, all those years ago, there was nothing. Do you identify with has has Native American identity been a part of you your recovery or your life? Like, is there any piece? Uh, yes, yes, and no. It's been off and on through my life. Like, I identify with the tribe. You know, do a little more stuff. Um, like lately, more than anything, learning a lot more of my language and a lot of my tribe. Actually, there's in America they're called Blackfeet or Pagan. Siskani, which is the Blackfeet and the Native American in Montana. The Blackfoot Confederacy is the rest of the tribes. They're in Canada, and they literally go from above Montana all the way to the coast is where they're spread out over. Like, there is five different bands, and we're actually one of the bands. So I found that out recently, looking through a bunch of stuff, and it's something that's been... A lot like on in Canada, there's a lot better setup than there is in America for what's going on with the natives. Yeah, somehow that doesn't surprise me. So, did you get in? Did you play a lot of sports, or were, did you start to get into the the drinking and and what was that like? Mainly, I got into the just working, getting through, and I didn't really do a whole lot of sports before because I was kind of shy, and I was always working. Like Roy always worked. I always worked, always tried doing our stuff, had my money to, you know, buy my own stuff, do my own things. And that was kind of the what we had to do because he could make enough to 
sports and everything else like that and wouldn't be an issue. But as far as anything extra, like that's where he was in his addiction too. And and looking back, I can see what's going on that, you know, you didn't get anything extra because somebody had to drink on the weekend too. You know, that's, and we never seen him drink one bit with us. Like in my whole life, I've never seen that man ever with a beer in his hand besides in pictures when we were kids. And I've never seen him pass out on the floor or high or anything else. So how did you know he was in his, like, what, what tells you? Looking back. Looking back. Just, okay. And, and uh, so you, you take off to find your biological father and, and this is like 18. Yeah, this is 18. Okay. So I was able to leave my aunt because she wasn't doing any more money. So I was right. okay with that. Uh, okay. What about your brother? Did he uh, stay? He stayed. Okay. He stayed. And uh, how did he take that split? I think that was a lot of the downward spiral for, spiral for him. That was a lot of the resentment he still holds today for me because I just left him there and because I had to do my own thing. And that's... The reason why he's a couple states away and hasn't made contact in a while, and that's kind of where we're at. That's another thing that needs to be healed and bridged, but not at this time. Yeah. Okay, so you go see your dad, and, and did you find him? Yeah, I found him, and actually the people that we were at and people that we were staying in his house in Kalispell, my friends, they actually were from Dillon here, and they kind of had known the family this family and down here came down here seeing them and you know montana's big but it's not seems like everybody knows everybody anyway and came down here and it was good because i was going to come down here for six months and then i was going to go to wyotech in wyoming for mechanics i was going to go to college already kind of had that set up that fell through pretty much just hung out for the first couple years smoked a lot of weed drank didn't have really any responsibilities. And then after a couple of years, I guess it was a year, then got a job, started working again, started just going from there, working, kind of doing my own thing. Met a girl, was with her for, I think, a year. Then we had my son, and that was a, a great time in my life just because of where I was at for work and what I was kind of doing. What were you doing for work? I, for a while there, I was doing, I was an electrician apprentice. And before that I, I'd worked tires for just a bit. And that was doing the electrician apprentice. And then when she had my son, I was supposed to go across the state and keep working. And I didn't know how it was going to be for her. Uh, looking back, it was a lot of my insecurities that kept me just like, hey, look, I got to stay with her. got to make sure she's okay. Worried about her leaving me. You know, a lot of the stuff had ran through. Looking back, I see a lot of that because it stems off of with my mother and not getting that taken care of. Like, And recently, as in like a week and a half ago, I started lining up everything. I had an epiphany and everything had lined through that this is what kind of has changed John since, you know, five years old. Yeah, for sure. Well, and and the other thing I'm thinking about, like number one, that's five years old. Because even even if you think it's alcohol poisoning, you still know that there was alcohol chosen over you, right? So, oh yeah, oh yeah. Whether it's suicide or alcohol poisoning, it's one is suicide. Alcohol is suicide on the installment plan, so it's just a different. And the father thing, you know, it's interesting. I'm thinking about that is 
one of the things that I know is that you, everybody knew that, that Roy wasn't your real father. And, and not only did you not know, but everybody else did know and no one told you. And then to find out the way that you did and at the same time, find out that your mother didn't die. Like, how do you trust people? How do you, how, how do you trust anyone? See, And that's, that's what it stemmed. Looking back, a lot of it stemmed from there. Like I, I always, I was always, always thought that I was a three, everybody else is a five. So you got to bridge the gap. You are less than that. Being the only brown kid in the white school, that kind of, you know, add to it. Not because it, I've never seen anything racist in my life. Like, but I believed it was, and my insecurity told me it was, and that never went unchecked, you know, that went unchecked for years. And that's what like 99.5% of my problems have been. Like I say, there was a lot of that that had happened. And my insecurity, there was like, I got told at a young age, like, even if you're not blood, you're family. And I, I, it was something probably in passing of something else that I didn't even, it wasn't even related to me at all, but I picked it up and I was like, that's kind of, you know, an odd thing to say. And then I remember my uncle who didn't like natives and was always with, always arguing with Roy, let me know that, you know, you're born a piece of shit. You're going to die a piece of shit. Just deal with it. I got told that about six. It was a lot of stuff that I, I just had picked up weird things, you know, and then when everything came together at 17, like everybody knew but didn't tell me, I thought myself to be odd and insecure. And then this right here, like this right here, just boosts it. Like, yep, it's true. 100%. You know, you have, you are the problem. You are the oddball out. You, it is you. The whole time you were thinking it was you, it was. See? And you and don't that, belong to anybody. Yep. Like, you right. know, you're, yep. it's, you're just it's a wreck. Like that's, you know. that's what it is. And that's why I jumped to come down here. So is Roy, is Roy Native American? No. Okay. My, my mother was. Your mother was. Okay. And then why did Roy, obviously he loved you guys very much to, you know, to do what he did and take such good care, you know, you know, to raise you or whatever. Um, I can't speak to the quality, but like to, to you you know, to be willing to do that and for children that, you know, turned out to be not his, what was his relation to you and your mother? As far as he loved my mother and looking back, like I say, I never thought about a lot of it. Past couple weeks have got me feeling a lot more of the other of what kind of a lot more stuff that lined up like, okay, this is what is. I asked him before, and we'll kind of circle back to that later on. I asked him before when an incident came up with me and he, I asked him, I was like, okay, how did you do it? Like, how did you straight up be like, this isn't my child. He's five years old. His mother just committed suicide and the youngest one's mine at three and decide, screw it. I'm going to take it on. And he's like, two old boys need somebody to watch him. Here I am. And then that's what he took on. So your younger brother, he is the father of your younger brother? As far as I know, as okay. far as anybody else knows. Okay. Okay. And I've heard stories, but we've, he's just claimed that way. They're both just same honoriness, so it's definite. Okay. 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 And so then when you find your real dad, where did he go? He was told, he was told, he told me he was told that I was a girl and that not to worry about it. And that's what he did. Like that's, that's the whole. I literally don't understand. What do you mean? Okay. So he was told that my mom was pregnant 
And he told me that she told him, told him that, that I was being born a girl, not being born John Sidmore. Right, and right, right. But I'm saying, like, why Why does that, do girls not need fathers? I don't, I don't know. That's what he said. And from there, this, this where, that's where the story kind of breaks up, because now I'm trying to get the truth out of somebody that may have been, may, may, may have been around, may have not been around, may have not tried, may have just, hey, look, she's pregnant, she's going back with him, don't worry about it. And then 17 years later, somebody's knocking on your door, and you play off the good guy, not off the, oh, look, I was just the guy that screwed around and didn't want to take any responsibility. And, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there. I was the nice guy. That's what I kind of got out of it. We came down here, and it was all right for a first little bit, but then there's, like, nothing there's nothing in common with either one of these two men in my life. Like there's my biological father and there's Roy. There's like night and day. One's got a career and has done a lot with his life. And the other one is just kind of runs a junkyard, dinks around, works when he wants to. Like he just did all the freedom stuff. Like, you know, just to have his own freedom, nothing for retirement, nothing saved away, nothing that most people are going to you know, want to achieve in their life. There isn't that. And then like I say, Roy is the opposite of that. He's got everything like that I want to do with my life. Did you stay with your dad? So you went down there. Did you mm-hmm. stay with, you did stay with him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I stayed with him and that's where I was like the carefree kind of life. And then just recently, like recently in the past year or two, three, three past three years, Roy kind of came back into my life. Roy, when, the backstory is when when Richard and I, the Richard's my younger brother. When Richard and I left and wound up going being part of you know going to the tribe and everything else, Roy quit smoking meth, quit drinking, and quit smoking, and started and hit his rock bottom when we left and started his recovery when I was seventeen. So that fast forward to where a few years ago, I wanted to try to get clean, and he was always you know we'd talk like. Eight years ago, we started talking again. You know, needed some time, all the other stuff, everything, and started talking again. And he's actually one of my biggest supporters to be in recovery, you know. And that's, I mean, he was the one that kept terrorizing me about, you know, quitting, quitting, quitting. And then finally, you know, I did and he helped me quit smoking too. So it was, it was good. So, okay, that's that's awesome. What a cool, like, you know, come around, you know, full circle. You So you said that you had, your son was born. It was a really great time in your life and, and you were insecure about leaving her alone. And then you had a couple other children as well, right? Yes. And see, I always had this thing that she was always going to leave me. She was always going to leave me because everybody's going to leave me. Just my insecurities running and looking back, like I can see this night and day of what you know what everything was and right in your in your defense you had a good reason to think that (laughs) yeah oh yeah yeah and like say so i had that so that was like we say when i got down here to dylan my insecurities came true because you know everybody knew besides john and it's true so then i kind of buried in my addiction a little more and then then i just kept working and then home life you know got my son and then a couple years later my daughter was being born. You know, that was the next step. Like, you know, perfect family, one of each. I uh, drinking a little more. A lot of it is just work. And I'd, I'd feed, 
I'd feed off, I'd get, I'd express all my emotions by drinking. I would feed off the, my chaos theory. I would work until, I'd work until I was physically exhausted so I could drink. So it'd work. And then it wound up being that I'd be stressed about work so I could drink. And I'd have to go to work because I'd have to be able to buy something to drink. And it just kept being that vicious circle, that vicious cycle of, you know, I'd, I'd buy myself my next drink by nine o'clock because I'd be stressed about work. Like, I know I'm drinking tonight. Like, that's what it was. And it just kept compounding about eight years. And the one spot, it was, it was just like no raises, nothing, dead end job, didn't care, drank a lot. Let's say my son, son was born right around that time. I'd quit for a bit and I quit smoking, chewing. I quit smoking for all the kids. I quit smoking in the house and I quit smoking around my wife because I was like, I'll be damned if this kid has asthma because I smoked in the house. Like I'm not doing that. So I quit a lot of it. And then it was like, I'm doing kids. Of course, I picked it right up. And then I always had the insecurity, you know, gonna leave, gonna leave, not good enough, not good enough. So I get a phone call when I'm working about a hundred miles away from my house. I get a phone call saying, don't hate me. You know, don't take this out on the kids. Da, 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 da. Your daughter's not yours. Kid that we just had that we named after your younger brother isn't yours. And the one that I'm carrying now isn't yours. This call is from your wife. Yes. That nine year when we're nine years after being married, just about nine years. Why would she? What? I don't know. She never, she told me finally that, that her guilt had just finally got to her. A lot of my insecurities are keeping her there, making sure she is here, doing this. You know, you got to be here. You got to be here. That's what Larry does. She's like, you just smothered me. You made it where I was just like, I couldn't do anything. So when I did find somebody to let me do anything, then that's who I was with. Then the guy that she was with and chose to be was my best friend for like 10 years. So when those two decided to be together and the, both those two decided to walk out of my life, What's John left with? He's left with the PBR he's been drinking for the past 10 years, and that's it. That's the coping mechanism. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, and, and, and you're left it. with you're left with more more evidence. Oh, yeah, it's true. Right? It's true. More now evidence that everybody enough. leaves. Yeah. And that I wasn't good enough. And that right. I wasn't, you know, this is what it is. Yep. So like that's where it is. And then I was just off to the rails. I mean, right off the rails because now I don't have the kids. I'm every other weekend for a while there because I was drinking so much. Couldn't have the kids. So, you know, pour me, pour me in our drink. That's what it was. Work, drink, work, drink, work, drink. And, and what did your drinking look like? Uh, it looked like if it was real bad the night before, it'd be five in the morning, be cracking a beer, pouring it into orange juice to get myself to work. At lunch, if I had a chance and I'd drink a beer, but usually wouldn't. And then after work, it would be a 12-pack and two tall boys to get me to about dinner time. And then I'd always drive back in town to grab a cup more because I always had the thing that if there's beer in the fridge, I'd be okay. If not, then, I mean, whether I drink it or not, I have to have it there. And then it was, you know, sneaking it wherever I could around the kids, you know, changing stuff. I tried changing it up because I was like, I realized I was drinking too much. So I'd change brands, change this. When I drink, how much I drink, and I'd get the thirst. All of a sudden, I'd have just out of the blue, you know, one beer doesn't even do anything, and then I'd drink a case of beer, 
And another case, like the one time I looked down, I'm like, I drink two cases, there's nothing, you know. And just that's when I knew a lot of it was kind of kind of going off the rails. I knew, like subconsciously and consciously, I knew that there was something going on. But at the time, I didn't care because I was able to just You're quiet. You're by yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I was by myself. I, and then I was by myself. And then my brother came down with his friend. And that's the second part of the shit show. Because he came down and he uh, he already had his own. I mean, we kind of rekindled a little bit of friendship, you know, brotherly love and everything. He was going to come down to help me. So he came down. I was drinking, gambling. He never did finish the bathroom that he came down there to, like, do. We were going to remodel this bathroom as half remodeled through, like, four years. But we... Uh, we kind of had it out either way, just because of drinking and a lot of the bad choices. He shot himself in the knee one time with the twenty-two pistol. It was entirely by accident. Alcohol was not a huge factor in that, but it was still a factor. We had shots fired in the house when Brandon and I were there. His friend, his friend, because Richard wanted to just be a shit, like he'd just shoot. Take, he took the rifle and he was just shooting the floor just to be a shit, just to see what kind of stuff would provoke us or would make anything like he was trying to start an argument, try to start anything just because he could. Like that was the philosophy. So does he have a drinking problem or a substance problem? Uh, yeah. Brandon is his friend that came down. Brandon Myers is his friend that came down with him. And he's part of my story towards the end too. So he, he come, they come down, do all that. Fast forward, Richard borrows my car, goes to town, gets a DUI. Okay. Because, you know, he's done 65 and a 25, but the cops after him, you know, typical Richard aggravated, you know, yelling at him and everything else. So it's his third DUI. So now I got to drive man out twice a day to do a breathalyzer on the 24 seven program. So as soon as he gets done with his blows at eight in the morning, I gotta be at work at nine because I'd made arrangements for all this. Then it's town pump, two tall boys because he can slam two of them and get drunk before he has to blow again at night. And he's got timed out to where every time he's still good, you know, because we're smart alcoholics like that. You know, that's that's how you got to do it. So go through that, and it's still the more same old shit. And for me, it's. Like, I'm drinking, I got pulled over, no DUI, got pulled over again, no DUI, cop pulled over, I pulled the trunk button on my car, trunk pops up, I'm out there slamming my trunk, like, you know, what's going on? And the officer's just like, okay, you know, he just drives off, because he realized that that's why I was swerving. You know, just little stuff like that, so I never got in trouble for anything, and that's where, like, after he he had an issue, he had an issue with how you were living your life. What were you doing that was with more... me and how I was living my life and everything? Okay, and okay, using okay. Using this twenty four seven program, yeah. Like I couldn't do this right. I couldn't do this right because it wasn't how he did would do it. You know, John can't take care of himself. That's why Richard has to be here to do it for him. Um, so at work, I got a call one day because we had worked on this lady's car and needed a lot of work. This lady called into when I was working at the tire shop and had actually donated, was wanting to donate a vehicle. And I was the one that picked up and I was the one that said that I'd take the vehicle. Richard was extremely jealous of that vehicle, like that I got it because he'd always let me know that I'm just going to trash it, you know, 
you're just going to treat it. You're just going to treat it like shit. It's just going to go waste on and on and on. Just trying to get me to give it to him. Well, the title comes in the mail. Richard goes to Washington with uh, Toyota. He hasn't came back since because, you know, God forbid I could have something that would super benefit me and my family and everything else. But Richard couldn't have it. So Richard leave. And at the same time, you know, Richard left. This is after I got sober. We're kind of bounced around. But Richard left after I got sober, just after I got sober, because when I went, decided to go to what happened is I'd finally decided to, I got in trouble with CPS. Well, it was, is I, there's a report from my kids that, you know, dad was drunk the night before and, you know, they came to the school and asked them because, you know, somebody had said something at the school and I got talked to by CPS and like, Hey, look, you got to figure something out. Da, 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 you know, your kids are saying this in school. There is a concern. And that's kind of right about the same time when I was looking around of like, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? I'd start talking about getting sober while I was drinking and everybody I think does. Then I started getting talking about getting sober when I was sober. People were like, well, maybe try to get into treatment. Well, luckily through my uh, work, my insurance covered a lot. First treatment was in Washington. It was nine months out. Second treatment was in South Dakota. They were 15 months out. Like waiting Rimrock, list? Yeah, waiting list. Like that's how long. So Rimrock, which is here in Montana, wouldn't work my insurance. And for $9,000 and eight months later, then I could walk into their 30-day program. So, you know, that was a great. And the native one for where I could set up there was anywhere from nine months to a year out. It was free as well, but same thing as nine months doesn't do you any good when you finally want to get sober. So I called around and Banyan called me out of Fort Lauderdale, of all places, 2,314 miles. I Googled it from where I live to their step. And had talked to me and would call me every night, like every night. And I'd be drinking every night. And be like, yeah, the guy's like, how's it going tonight? And I'd crack a beer. And I'm like, that's how it's going. I was like, and I'd talk to him. And the guy literally had bullshitted with me enough to where he's like, you should just come down here, try it out. Like drink the whole way here. We don't, we don't want you to be sober and come down here. He's like, get you on the plane. I'd never been on a plane before. Nothing like that. So I was like, okay, he's finding me tickets and, you know, just, just bullshit me the whole way there pretty much. And my family had put up the money. Roy actually is the one that bought the plane ticket for me to go down to Fort Lauderdale. So here I am, never been on plane before, get on a plane, drink the whole way there, February 1st, 2018. So I my sober dates the second because the first, I went down there, drop into Miami, Miami-Dade Airport there. I can see lights for as far as I can see. Nothing else. Just drunk. Get picked up by Banyan and get there, and there's seven lanes of traffic, and there's like seven million people in Miami-Dade County, and I'm like, there's almost a million in Montana, like in the whole state of Montana, like they're talking about me, you know, do you want to leave? You got to do this. And I'm like, I don't even know which way's north. I'm 2,300 miles away from home. Nobody's getting me a bus ticket. I am stuck here, so let's do this. And that's what I did. When I got into when I got into Banyan, because I was at Banyan Roca starting out, it was actually really good. I 
got in there and there's a whole bunch of other people and it was a really good environment. And I just started kind of, you know, I'd been in the program a little bit because Roy, Roy went to AA meetings and stuff, you know, off and on. And it's like, ah, you know, kind of picked up that maybe he did have a drinking problem, but we never see him drink. So it wasn't a huge deal for us. So played around with a big book, played around with a little bit of the, a couple of the other recovery stuff, the Buddhist one and stuff like that in there. And then I realized something in rehab. When I was talking to my counselor about, you know, forgiving myself, you know, what kind of some of the core stuff she kind of started out. But I realized I was like, I am 2,314 miles away from anybody I know. Like when we're talking about opening up, telling, you know, our darkest fears, anything like that. I did because everybody there, if you took everybody there in most of those rooms and gave them a hundred dollars and a pen and told them point Dillon, Montana out on a map, 90% of them probably couldn't find Montana. <laughs> the rest of them couldn't find Dillon, Montana when it's the Beaver Head County is the size of Delaware. And we have seven, I think we actually have 85, 8,500 people in the whole county where I'm at. <laughs> like there is nothing here. We are 60 miles from the nearest Walmart, Wendy's. Like, you know, yeah, there's, there's nothing middle of nowhere. So I just told everybody everything like, my darkest feelings of my mother, my resentments, how, why I hated myself, how I felt, how hard it was, and just let it pour out. Like, like I always said, like taking off my coat of shame and guilt, like I just did because everybody there, I mean, I was the first one from Montana. I was like, nobody's going to find me because that was my thing is my, was my insecurity was somebody's going to hold this over you. Oh, you know, I know something about you. And for the rest of my life before that, everything came true. So I really don't want to tell somebody something that hold dear and then have it be held over me. And luckily I was able to have a spot to do that. And And when you did that, was it as scary as you thought it was going to be? Like, did it turn out like when you got it out, were people like, Oh my God, yeah, that's horrible. You know, like how did it feel? No, no, actually to tell you the, the closest feeling is like when you're on a diving board, right. And you're like, and then you just jump. And that's just that little bit of just free fall of nothing of just bliss. There's nothing pushing on you. You're not any direction. You're just floating. That's what it was for me. And the more I shared it and the deeper I shared it, the more I put the more feeling into it and the more of everything, the better I felt like that whole deal of, you know, secrets keep you sick. Like, yeah, it, it's it, after going through that part, it was 45 days of that. I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was something that got me to where I could be somewhere. You know, I could, I could, I told my story. I told how I felt. People had a lot. I mean, they're then hearing other people's stories, and I'm like, you know, mine isn't all that bad, you know, compare. And it started, it started getting me going in the right direction. And a lot of it was like, I remember looking in the mirror about three years before that. And then when I was there, I actually looked in the mirror and I'm like, you know, actually wanted to see who was there and kind of started figuring out who John was. When I started there, then I came back and I came back to 45 days later, came back and I already had a career, you know, I have property here. I've the lot of stuff I had to come back to other than I was stayed longer. 
but it was great going through all that and it kind of instilled a lot of stuff. I mean, I still got all my stuff from Banyan, all the notes I wrote down, just kind of a reminder, you know, my story before how everything was, you know, and then I come home. So now I'm on the plane, you know, second time being on a plane, first time being in Texas, went through Dallas airport. It was great. I was sober, scared, wondering what's going on. Because the last time I was on a plane, they're like, you know, that drunk guy, just point him over there. He'll be fine. You know, so I get back and get back here. And during my five months before I decided to quit drinking, I met a girl. She had twins. They were a month old at the time. Sebastian, who is uh, who has um, OI, uh, osteogenesis imperfecta. And then his twin brother, Lewis, who is, is autistic. Uh, they're still working on to what degree. So five months after this relationship, we I leave, go for 45 days, come back, and she's there to, you know, be back with. So, you know, that's and the a, a twins boost. Are now, the twins are now like six months old? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we kind of go from, from there. Like, we, she helps me out a lot. Richard finally left after it had been like that summer, I think, the summer of 2018. He came he back with the Toyota? Yeah, he came back with a different Toyota, and then it was just, yeah, it was a big, it was like, oh, well, I'll give you this and this. Well, then I found out the whole time when I was gone, because Brandon and Richard watched my house, because I have dogs and everything, and they watched the place. Like, part of the deal was, you guys can stay here. Right. Make sure the house stays yeah. warm, the dogs stay alive. Don't shoot the dogs. Yep. Like, I told him, I was like, if the dogs aren't here, you don't be here when I get back. If the dogs are here, you're you're okay, you know? Cause my one dog I've had since my son was like six months old. So she's been around. She's my first kid. I, I say, but so the meantime, he'd pawned a bunch of my stuff because, you know, they need, you know, he needed to, you know, gamble, drink, right. you know, buy a little math, you know, stuff like of that. Course. So I can, yeah, just a little, you know, just you'd have fun on my dime. I mean, I'm already figuring out how to pay the power and everything else during this leave of absence. My work, great with it because like i drive the service truck drunk i you know they they knew but the same thing is like what are they gonna do like they're like we could try we try fire them but that's gonna be worse because then we have to admit that we've been letting them drink and drive in the service truck for the past six years like you know and they're like you know nothing there's no incident or anything but it's just it's stupid when i look back on how many miles i drove the service truck drunk but so they are happy to have me back, happy to be back working, and that was good for a bit. And you came home, and, and the dogs were good, and and dogs were good. They were good. Pond, but yeah, stuff was pawned. Richard and Brandon were arguing. Brandon was drunk because he's been struggling with alcohol. He's been an alcoholic for years. He has his own. He has his own encyclopedia stuff, and that's why we kind of wound up being friends after everything. But he, so. I come back home. Brandon's not around because I told him before, both of them, that I wasn't out drinking around the house. I wasn't going to have that when I come back. I want to come back to something sober. I want to work on this because I've invested, you know. I was away from the kids for 45 days, away from my girlfriend, away from work, the dogs, everything. So it started being good. It started being good all the way around, you know, working. I didn't go to AA. I did the Lion Rock. Then I was up in the IOP. My work was absolutely fantastic with it because I knew I needed it and it was kind of a long time coming for them. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. 
Hi, this is Ashley Lowe Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. Okay, so you're at Banyan and then they're like, okay, we have this option for you, this online IOP. Are you like, what is that? That's crazy. Yeah, well, they first they first wanted me to stay in Florida and do an IOP. They're like, can you stay here and do an IOP? I'm like, I've got a career at home. I've got my dogs, my kids, 47 acres and a house. Like, I need to be home. I can't be in Florida. So that's when I'd left. And that's what the hardest thing is for Montana. There's besides your local AAs, there's not a whole lot of other stuff out here. There just, there just isn't, there's not a whole lot out here anyway. And that's what, and and for the timing wise to try to get something set up, like our nearest place from here to do an IOP, I believe was Bozeman at the time. And that's like, you know, two and a half hours away. Well, I can't have a career here and be two and a half hours away. I just, it's not going to work. So Lion Rock was great because I could do it on over my phone. I could do choose my sessions for the first bit, and then it wound up being less and less, and it was even better. And it was great because we met enough times. Like I know a lot of people there. They're still in the group that were there when I started. So it's been you guys are great. you guys are in the in a continuing recovery group. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now yeah. we're in a continuing recovery group. But we started out all in the same one, you know. Did you ever think you could be so close to people through video conference? Uh, no, actually, I when I first had heard about, it, I'm like, what is this going to be? I really was skeptical because it's like, okay, you know, I don't, I don't, you can't see somebody through a computer screen and really have, you know, a lot of stuff that you can talk about. But then again, it was great because then you're talking to somebody and you're getting all of it but then they're not right there. Like you can be in your own thing. You know, like Laura said, she's like, you know, most people can just be wearing a shirt and that's all they'd be wearing. <laughs> Nobody knows. Nobody, it. yeah, like, it's true. Okay. You know, I guess if that's how you feel comfortable, you know, and it was, it was, it and was, for, it was really great. For people who don't know, IOP is intensive outpatient and Laura, um, she is a therapist at Lion Rock. So, okay. So you come back, you're doing that and you're back with the girlfriend so how does that work with coming back to life? Like, how was that transition getting back into your life? It was good because at the time she had kind of quit drinking too and <clears throat> was very supportive. And it was great coming back to it. And then I was able to keep myself busy and just go from there. And really, there wasn't a whole lot that was changing for the first, oh, first full year, really. I mean... Hunted, fished, did I did everything. Got kind of bored with my work. My work um, worked at Les Schwab Tires as a tire tech, like tractor tires, ore tires, car tires, truck tires, any kind of tires we worked on. That was part of my vicious cycle I've always had is the stress from work would buy me a drink. Stress from work would buy me a drink. The fall of 2018, I quit chewing because I had throat surgery. 
not cancerous or anything. It was, I had a transplanting uvula. So I quit chewing. That was a great improvement in my life. And then I couldn't, I was smoking and I was smoking more. And I noticed I was smoking more because of the stress of work. And it was kind of one of the black things. It's like, you know, then it got real stressful at work one day. And then I got another job offer for just a little bit more. But it's like Monday through Friday, no weekends. And I'm like, I'm on the 24-hour phone here at work, working every Saturday, six days a week, you know, eight to six. Like, So it was great. So I switched. I thought it was going to be a great career move. Well, at the end of, end of 2019, the company decided, oh, we're going to go a different direction right at six months because at six months is when $2 an hour raise, full insurance and full benefits come in because you're done with your probationary period. So magically, right before that, is when they let me go. Then I had to go back to Schwab, and it didn't get any better when I went back there, when I went back to Les Schwab. Just the turmoil of, you know, the nepotism, the cronyism with family and everything there, and just the environment. And then, fast forward to this year, I stayed with them through winter, and then April 1st of this year, I changed to where I'm at now, to landscaping. Eight to five, Monday through Friday, outdoor work, and I guess see my progress. So for the reward wise, I instantly get a reward because I see what's going on. Yeah. You had another incident that I was curious how you dealt with. And I don't know when in this timeline this happened, but you found out that your brother had done something against one of your children that was... Yes. Yes. My other brother, because I see my Roy and Roy, Richard and I, Okay, Richard and I are half brothers. Okay. My father that my father has another son that's younger uh younger than richard it's my okay. other half brother in the midst of the drinking your biological father yeah, my biological father and the midst of the drinking and everything right before i went to re uh to rehab there was an incident where he was inappropriately touching my daughter and my and richard was actually the one that's stop me because my plan ultimately was to just kill him. And that was a lot of the stuff that kind of had driven me to do the, to do the, the part of like, you got to stop like this got to stop because then I blamed myself because I couldn't protect her because I was drinking and wasn't there and everything had kind of got screwed up because of my drinking. And I started being more conscious of that. You know, and then that kind of split the family and everything else just because things like that do. You know? Yeah. Did your ex-wife, did she find out? She about- found out because, well, she was my ex. Like we we were separated for almost a year before we signed the papers. She found out. She, of course, is furious. And I mean, it was, but we were coming together on that, you know, but it was still one of those things. Found that out before I went to Florida, actually. And actually, the day before I went to Florida, I signed my divorce papers. And then I went to Florida. So it was like a big week right there. That, but, is, a big, that is a big week. And, and were you able to do a lot of work on those feelings of guilt at Banyan? Yes. A lot of it was a lot of it was I was able to be sober enough to be able to start letting feelings in. Because a lot of it was, a lot of my drinking was around that, I'd start having feelings. I'd start getting anxiety. You know, it works. Drinking does work. I mean, I ain't going to lie to you or anything else. If you want to shut something off, you can drink yourself to shut off. 
problem is you have to keep drinking to shut yourself off or you have to drink more and then it's the side effects. It's not so much what it doesn't do, it's what everything happens afterward. I don't know if you had this experience, but I had the experience where like, yes, it worked, it worked, it worked, it worked. And then it didn't work as well. Like it, yep. you needed more for less. For, for it to work not really as well. Like it didn't shut it all the way out. And you get to this place, and I think you, you know, you you described it, and you get to this place where it's like there's just you can't live with it and you can't live without it. And there's just there is nowhere to go. There's nowhere to turn. And you hate yourself because you've gotten yourself. I mean, you're you're aware that you're in this crazy situation, but there's just it seems like there's no way out. Like there's, there's the just smell. no way out. Yep. That's the smell is what I call it is where you can, the smell and the taste and it's just death. It's it a hundred percent. You know, you can't go on without it and you can't get away from it and you feel dead and you feel sour inside and even your breath, you can just taste it and it's just wet, hot and just sick and you can just every part of you and i that's where i'd gotten to was that i just like i knew i was doing wrong like it's like i can't not drink i can't not do this and then i you know then i'd be mad at myself for drinking right and then it just it just be its own vicious cycle along with what else is going on and then i got to be with the, the only part right before at the end what got to be was it was the 15 minutes and the 15 minutes that I could be mostly there, but comfortably numb before passing out at the end of the night. Like that was what I strive for. And sometimes I'd get 16, sometimes I'd only get 10, but it was always worth it because I had that bliss. And that's the part that worked. That's the part that kept me going because it would work. It would work. And every time it would work. And then I could forget about it. And then I'd have to wake up and then go through all the shit again. But then it would buy me that night because I could get through it. It really it really speaks to the level of internal pain and internal torment that we have that we're willing to, you know, live on torched <laughs> torched earth and and or to torch earth in order to get 15 minutes or whatever it is, if you're lucky, 15 minutes of that perfect space of like numb. I, I remember that too, where it was just like, I, for me, it was like multiple chemicals and I would, I would always overshoot the mark and like try to get to that one space where you just felt that comfortably numb because sometimes you get so drunk or so high or whatever it is, like you're numb, but you feel like you're just out of control. You're like, Oh, like this is too much. You know, you just never could get it right. And and you you always feel like shit. And what was interesting for me was I don't know if you experienced this was that when I got sober and when I got a, you know some time of sobriety behind me, I didn't realize how shitty I felt. Like I I think I got used to feeling sick every day, like just sick. Like I, I, that was normal. So I didn't even realize until I was no longer like physically ill that I had been so sick. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. I had that with like with work. Like I'd show up to work hungover. Like I finished a beer on the way here and I put in a dip so nobody could smell it so I could get here and I would work and I know I stunk because I'd you know be just breaking down tires, just be working and work until that hangover was done. 
And then by six o'clock, you know, you're like, oh, I'm never going to do it again. By seven o'clock, you're already drunk and it's a vicious cycle. And then sleeping in one time or staying up too late the first time when I was sober and I woke up and I'm like, dude, this is worse than a hangover. And then I started looking at myself like I put myself through this every day, like every day. Every day would be wake up and you know you still got alcohol running through your system. You know that you're smoking a mar bread and for breakfast, you're not going to eat. You know, I lost a lot of weight for the when I really got into it because it was ramen noodles and beer. That was it. Like there was nothing else because I could nuke it while I was drinking a beer, eat it and then just go through it. And it's like when I started looking at it. It's like that's what I did to my body. Like there is a lot of questionable stuff that has happened to my body because of the alcohol and and a lot of what we put ourselves through. And it's amazing how the human body actually heals itself. It it is a miracle in itself for what I've know what I've put through my body. Actually, I don't because there's a lot of times I didn't know what I was doing, but yeah. Uh, I mean, it is, it's, it's, uh, it's, we're definitely incredibly resilient and, you know, I think the scary thing is like, you don't know, none of us know where that, point is where our body is going to go, you know? And, you know, yeah, it's super, like we made it through all these things and it's incredibly resilient, but we, we didn't know where that, we could have been right up against that threshold of it being, that being the last, you know, straw of what, of it going. And, and for a lot of people, you know, they think, oh, I'm so resilient. Oh, I can do this. I'll just keep, you know, pushing on this. Like, it's not that bad. And they, and they just don't know, you know, it's just, you just, you just, really don't know where, you know, I always laugh now because I'm, I'm super uh, lactose intolerant and, you know, not something that I, that I went through while I was using. And the other day I had something, I had some dairy in my food and I was just horrendously sick for a day. And I was laughing like, I, there, I think an apple teeny would kill me at this point. My body is so used to being, having like clean energy and not having it. <laughs> that I think I don't I think I think I would drop dead if I tried to drink or use at this point my body is just not used to it because you get used to whatever condition you live in for long enough yeah and like I say that smoking a mar bread for breakfast reason why I say is that was breakfast a lot of times like wake up you know same clothes the night before you still have that smell you don't care smoke cigarette got to make it to work you know, can't get in trouble again, can't get in trouble again. Like there was a lot of that. And there was a lot of that feeling too, all the way through that, you know, you just don't care. And you just close your mind so much. The most beautiful thing I've seen after when, after I got back to Montana and sobered up for a little bit was I watched the sun come up, watched the sun go down. And I seen the moon stars. And it was like, I forgot the last time I even looked down because we close our minds so much when all we do is focus on that drink. Like you drive by stuff and you don't even see it. And then how like that's the best part about recovery was when just seeing stuff and just enjoying it and getting your, you know, all the senses and everything. Yeah. It, it, it's hard to explain that because if you had told me that's what the great part of being sober was, I would have been like, great. I don't want that. Um, like, that's not worth it for to share my deepest, darkest secrets and go through detox. But it's a, you know, it's a feeling that you, you get. And it's, it's been really interesting. I, you know, I think no matter where on this, on the spectrum you are at this point, politically, all of us think that 
America is a shit show right now. I think that's an easy, like, I don't think it doesn't, I actually don't think it matters where you fall. Everybody thinks it's a shit show. It is. Oh yeah. That's, that's a guarantee. It's a, right it's now, a guarantee, it a right? It's just a shit show. Like that, that's not arguable. Whose fault it is maybe arguable, but, but the fact that it's that way. And, uh, and I was, I, I had this, you know, kind of moment, uh, the other day and I was like, Oh, that's right. The only option I was thinking about, like, God, when is there going to be, you know, solution? When is blah, 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 like going in my mind about the stress and the chaos. And I had this moment of like, oh, yeah, the answer is still inner peace. It's always inner peace. Oh, it's always damn inner peace. <laughs> that's what we have. And, and you know, the sobriety piece is that that's what I've been able to get. But if you had told me, Ashley, we you need to quit drinking and using and in exchange you're going to get inner peace i would have laughed and oh, yeah. continued to I drink did, and use they told me that they're like, yeah. oh you know this will be this you know quit drinking quit smoking you'll you know, yeah you'll, you'll get inner peace yeah and you'll be fine you'll be the world will be great uh-huh. and I'm like that's the biggest load of shit i've ever heard uh-huh. in my life. Like, uh-huh. I'm buying another beer and going yeah, home. Yeah, like, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think my money's on Paps. So yeah, like yep. I think, yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm not interested in your 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 snake oil. But it's amazing. Like you, it's. I remember listening to people talk, like an early recovery, and going to meetings and listening to people say say these things. I'm, you know, say I'm grateful to be an alcoholic. I'm grateful for what I went through because it got me to this and blah blah blah. And thinking to myself, like, what is going on here. Like I am in an alternative universe and now, you know, clean and sober 14 plus years later, I can tell you that I genuinely feel that way. I get it. I get why people say that. I get it. It's it's because your brain accesses pieces of you and the ability to not hate yourself all day and to be comfortable in your skin, the ability to just be, have some semblance of comfort in your own skin, not want to peel your skin off and run away all the time. Like it changes the experience of everything around you. I think that was the, what I didn't understand. I thought that what I was experiencing was real, but what I was experiencing was colored by the alcohol, the anxiety, the depression, the hatred. And so I couldn't experience, like you said, the sunset, the sun, you know, like those things were unremarkable because of the state of being that I was in. And so when you told me that I was going to get that again, it didn't mean anything to me because I didn't know what that meant until right, right. Or it was, appreciate it. Yeah. I just, I had no idea. So I, I totally relate to that. And how has your native American, you know, for, for me, the longer I'm sober and the more I get into more spiritual things and, and getting really back to, again, for me, more like coming back to roots and nature, like so many things are really just, if you bring them back to the basic principles of things, like that's where the truth is, truth lies. So I'm just curious, like, have you, uh, since being sober, had any reconnection to your heritage and that kind of thing? Yes, actually, um, about a month or two ago, a lot is this year has been my year. I mean, I know it's not the world's year, which that's fine. <laughs> because, you know, if it's Glad just it's someone's me, year. right? If it's for me, if yeah. it's just for me okay, or the world, good. I'm picking the I'm picking me. You know, that's how it's gonna be. I've got start reconnecting to a lot of my roots and started learning Blackfoot again, like my native language. The language has been spoken before Christopher Columbus even came over here. Back when the first original horses were here, before the Spaniards, before anything else. Started reconnecting to that, doing a little more of the prayers, a little more sighing. I noticed that even 
like I started going to AA, um, I guess it'd be January of this year. I finally went to a local chapter here Tuesday night, and it was, it was great. I started going to AA at the start of this year. Um, actually, Laura got me on. I was on layoff, and there was really no excuse why I couldn't make a meeting. So I made a meeting, and it was been great. Well, I noticed about two months ago I was still missing something. Like, AA was great, and then it was missing. So I believed it was my spirituality. Like, that part of the higher power and getting a lot of that. And that's when I started looking more at my roots and learning Blackfoot and doing a little bit of stuff that way and reading into a lot more. And that has helped out tremendously. And a lot of it, if you told me this I was going to be three years ago, I'm with you. I'm like, no. But I get it now. Like, a lot of the stuff fills in and lines up and... It's great. Like everything lines back to this is what is, this is what I need. This is, it can be better. Like the whole deal on the promises. Yeah. They get filled like their beakers all the way across the table. And each day, like a drop gets put in one, two or three. And at the end of it, the beakers filled up. I always thought it was like, you got it all at once. Cause that's how we need it. You know, get all at once, but it's just well, drop by drop. And it adds in, and it's great because it is so much better on stay by day. It's, it is how you make it, and everybody's got their own thing. Like there, and I'm still got a long ways to go, but it's it's a lot easier every day. The more you open up, the more you share, the more you do for you, the better it gets all the way around. I mean, like now, now what I'm dealing with now at two and a half years is something that like my epiphany that happened a couple weeks ago is because of another incident with my security and my insecurity and with everything that has came crumbling down. And then a few pivotal moments opened up things that were like recessed in my brain that I didn't want to even, even want to deal with that now I have to deal with in sobriety. Like I'm doing everything all over again except for I'm doing it sober and I didn't know what to do when I was drinking. Now I really don't know because I don't have anything actually to turn to. But you do know because you have this, this group of people that you have connected to. And that's, what's cool about sobriety, right? Is like, you know, when we were drinking, we had our, (laughs) you know, with all due respect, our, you know, lovely drinking buddies, you oh, know, yeah, yeah, everybody the yeah right. So we had give alcoholic a couple beers, and then right. you know they'll tell you what's wrong with everything. Exactly, you know, fix exactly. Like my friends, <laughs> my friends, and bless their hearts, I'm grateful they did it. But you know, they got me eight balls for my birthday. Like that was, you know, that was the solution to all our problems. <laughs> Right? Like like Everclear was definitely like, oh, she's going through a breakup. We need to get her a bottle. Everclear. And I'm very grateful for that. But that's not, you know, now we have we have friends who are gonna, you know, help us get through this stuff and do it sober. And I find that we get through it a lot faster because we just get into it. I noticed that too. I noticed that we get over it faster. I noticed that when I got sick. Like when I quit smoking, I don't have my allergies anymore. Always had allergies. <laughs> when I quit you mean smoking, the allergies I, I were marble <laughs> reds? Oops. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had. Well, yeah. Well, I had like I'm allergic to cotton. Okay. Seed. And like, during seasonal allergies, I'd always get, and I just smoke a few more cigarettes and drink through it because you know it's miserable, and you can be either miserable and drunk or miserable and, and drunk, or you can be yeah. miserable and yeah. drunk, and you might as well just be drunk because at least you know you can fight fire with fire. 
And this year, like my, I don't have my, I don't have my allergies like I had last year. When I still, I don't have like I don't get sick as bad as I did when I was drinking. There's a lot of stuff that I don't, and I can see a lot more the meaning of life and how I interact and how everybody else interacts around me, and look a lot deeper. Because we're gifted with being alcoholics and addicts. Like everybody thinks it's a curse. It's a gift because normal people, as I say, quote unquote, normal people would never understand what we can understand because they'd never be able to on the same level because of where we put ourselves through, what we put ourselves through, how low we've got, how high we have been. To the extent like they could, people say, "Oh, look, you know, break up this, that." No, like, yeah, it's it's a lot more. I mean, I think I think it's kind of the same as you know when you have people who go to war and they you know they go to war together and they see things and they do things and they experience things together that a normal civilian just can't understand. It doesn't matter how much, how it even even if you are you know as close as you can be without being there, you still weren't there. And I do think there's something to be said and not that not that people who haven't been there can't help us cuz they can, but there's something to be said for understanding like there is a there is such a sense of utter hatred and powerlessness and chaos feeling of literally giving yourself poison and not being able to stop and knowing you're like knowing, you know, and, and, and not being able to do anything about it, not being able to stop and, and not, and not caring. Either. Oh my gosh. Like just blatantly just drinking it and be like, I know where this is going to end, or maybe I don't, or maybe there's so many maybes. And at the same time, it's like, just finish your beer. You'll be fine. It's like, you'll tell your lie to yourself. I'll get better after this one. This will be my last one was my famous line. Like this will be my last one for the night. Now look down. And I, and I, for me, like I stopped doing, like I got to the point where I was like, I'm just going to do this as big and as hard as I can because I, it was almost like my antidote to like, I can't stop was I'm just going to go as hard as I can because then at least I wasn't trying to stop. Then I wasn't fighting myself. The har- the harder I went, the more I was like, I'm just going to do it as much as I can, as fast as I can. I wasn't fighting myself. And there's just that terrible feeling of of being tortured and fighting yourself. And that's the, that, I mean, God, I don't miss that at all. It's a release, release that self though too, when you quit fighting yourself and you're like, you know what? It's off the rails. We're just going to do this, see where it goes. Hope for the best, pray for the worst, bottoms up. And that's what it was for me towards the end. And then I was like, I got to do something after I skated through everything. It's just, I got to do something. I got to do something. And then it was really out of everything. It wasn't the kids. It wasn't me. It wasn't this. It wasn't that. All it was, was desperation. The gift of desperation. Desperation is God is gift of desperation. And that's what it is. That's what drove me to impending doom. Like this is going to happen. This is going to be horrible. What am I going to get through? I wasn't thinking about killing somebody on the road driving. I was thinking about being in trouble, like me being in trouble. The rest I didn't care about. I was so oblivious to how much I had actually like risked just to get that 15 minutes. Looking back, it's like, I can't believe it's, it's worth insane. it. But then again, yeah, it's an, it is insane, but the same thing is it is worth it because it works. Right. Until it, works. it doesn't. And it's everywhere. <laughs> you know, until it doesn't. And then you have an issue. 
and that's where and it's so acceptable like you get drunk somewhere and oh look you know they're just drunk if you stick yourself if you stick a needle in your arm then everybody freaks out but if you you know if you smoke a joint or you know drink a beer you're fine and then it's open. or a glass of wine or yeah you cuz 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 you were drinking beer and and you know i mean i feel like a lot of people who where their drug of choice or their their substance of choice is beer or wine it is much harder for them like mine was real oh, obvious yeah. oh, that yeah. we had a problem Everything, like my phone pops up like my favorite drink is was is actually has always been pbr like that's what i drink and like my phone pops up there is ads everywhere you can't go anywhere where there isn't a beer commercial for something you know there's not a heroin commercial or a cocaine commercial or something like you know anything like that it's just beer wine and and smokes like you can walk in most places you can walk around drinking i mean like in dylan here you can walk around in the city open container nobody's gonna say anything and it's fine. You get drunk at a football game. It's fine. You get drunk anywhere, and they just had too much to drink. That's all it is. Even if you're killing yourself every yep. day, we've normalized it much so much, and we've we've really normalized binge drinking, which is interesting because oh yeah, yeah, it's okay. Like you have to go out and have a thirty pack to have fun. It's like I couldn't survive a thirty pack. Right oh my gosh, now. can you imagine? We would, I think we would die. We would just keel over and die. I think I, I, I probably would. I probably make it through like three. And be passed out and dead and hate my life even more than I did before when I was drinking, and it would not be good. And that's what scares me the most. Just like with quitting smoking, I quit smoking, and I was mad at myself for grass being on the lawn. I was mad at the dog because there's grass on the lawn, and I was just mad. I'll never pick up a cigarette again because if I pick up a cigarette, that means I gotta quit again, and I don't want to totally quit again. get that. I, 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 I'm not drinking. Like I can't put myself through that emotional distress back and forth looking back at feelings yeah. that, you know <laughs> yes, like, i don't want to do that do again <laughs> nope that's where I, i'm at and that's where it should there be. were many years i remember uh calling my sponsor many years where and i said look i gotta tell you that like the only reason i'm staying sober today is because i don't want to pick up a newcomer chip and i don't want to go through that again and and she was like i don't really care what your reason is as long as you don't drink yeah and at the time i thought i was like well shit aren't shouldn't i have like internal motivation and shouldn't i care about this and like doesn't that matter and uh and now i look back and like no it does not matter it absolutely does not matter it doesn't matter if i did it for the martians yep 10 seconds two minutes just keep adding it up and that's just it and it is it does get easier and it does get better when you have more time and a lot of it is is just don't get excited like that's what i realized the most like the first bit, like I want to do this, this, this. And I just set myself up for a fall. It's like, just slow down. You'll be okay. You're not drinking. Find something else to do. Eat some ice cream. That was actually a huge thing that helped me. But that was, you know, it's just like that. That's what it is. Now, my thing is now where I'm at at two and a half years is dealing with the emotions and stuff that I've had to the first time. Like for the first time, now I'm single and sober. That's the first time in 20 years I've had to deal with this. Like not saying it's bad or anything, but like, what do yep. I do? There's uh, people who talk about sober sex for the first time, people who haven't had sober sex in, in 30 years or, or sober dating or any of those things. Like those things are a really big deal because they're not things that we, we, do, we don't know how to do, you know? Right, right. Exactly. Like, that's just it. Like try to be romantic without beer and like, you know, you don't. Know, 
You can you, you go here, you sit down and you watch the guy next to you drink half a beer and then leave it there. Like who does that at a restaurant? You know, that's, that's where a lot of it is. It's great because you can experience all the same stuff you did before sober and you can do it a different way because really it doesn't matter which way you do it because it's new. You know, like me, this is, like I say, it's all the way around right back to the same question I've been asking myself since I get sober. What does John want? What does he need? What's he going to do? And that's what everything rolls back to. And I think it always will. And I think if you keep the more time you get with your sobriety, the better off it is just because you have a little more, little more and it gets easier this past week, week and a half hasn't been easy for me, but it's one of those things that, you know, it's something you got to deal with. And and you've done the work and you're doing the work and that, that makes a big difference because when you don't do the work and you stay sober, then you're just left mm-hmm. with the thing you ran away yeah, from. You're just dry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, then you just dry. It's it. And the emotion part, like half the time anymore, I just get high off them. Like the difference of the emotion and everything else, because I know I'm never going to put another substance in my body. I'm not going to get there. So a little bit, a little bit of, you know, a little bit of stress every now and then isn't bad. A little bit of anger, a little bit of sadness even, and a little bit, a little time a bit ashamed. A little bit of stuff just kind of keep me humble does do a lot of it because it is something you gain. I mean, it's something you can feel and you might as well just enjoy it because it's about the only thing you're ever going to get again if you really want to recover and not, you know, go back to a substance doing it. Get a little bit of adrenaline. That's always nice. You know, that's the same thrill we're getting from the substance. Yep, yep, yep. that's you true. Know? That's why I've uh, jumped out of planes and off bridges. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I oh, do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, we did a bunch of questionable stuff when uh-huh. they were drinking anyway. I mean, that... My parents would tell you I've done a lot of questionable stuff while not drinking. <laughs> My mother was like, if you die because you needed to jump out of an airplane, I am going to be so pissed. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how to take that, mom, but okay. If you could go back to the first day at Banyan, okay, the first, you arrive you arrive at Banyan, you're drunk, you wake up the next day and it's the first day sober. And you could tell yourself one thing, what would that thing be? I'll t- I'd tell myself the same thing that I told myself. Fuck it. We're on with it. We're already here. Nobody knows you. Why not? That's what, what my biggest thing was, is why not? When you get there, what do you got to lose? What do you really have to lose? Nothing, because you've already drank yourself and already went through fear, anxiety, put everything as a shit show. If you did it as well as I did, then it was already, it was already fucked up. It only could really get better. So, you know, as the whole saying goes, you get all the way to rock bottom, at least you got something to build a good foundation and <laughs> yeah, go up with. True. I mean, that's what you got. That's true. Rock, <laughs> rock bottom, you know, rock bottom is where you stop digging. Yep. Wherever you- yep. And it is, true, and that's, that's a lot of it. That is a lot of it. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and your perspective. It was lovely to have you. And I'm just so inspired by the work that you're doing. And I think a lot of people will really relate to a lot of the feelings that we talked about. And particularly, I think I really love when men come on here and talk about feelings and and having to go through them and having and having it be like, look, it sucked, but I did it and and it got better. Right. Well, and a lot of the stuff, like like I said, my recent thing that was here was like my ex-girlfriend now, 
she went through a bunch of stuff, lost her kids, had had a lot of stuff going with her. And she attempted to uh she attempted suicide. And that's what a lot of the feelings that kind of revert back to twenty nine years ago, me being five, that I'm having to deal with now, those came up being sober because now I'm finally at a spot to be able to deal with them and do something. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that like, if it was this way three years ago, I wouldn't have been able right. to deal with it. Of course. I was, I was but now you are. And, and it's just, that's, that's a miracle. It's an amazing thing. And you've done amazing work and you've taken advantage of the, you know, of the opportunities placed in front of you. That's a big deal. That's an important piece to this too, is that the, you you took advantage of the opportunities that were laid out in front of you. And yeah, I'm just, you know, really happy for you and, and inspired by your story. So thank you for coming on and sharing it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information. 